This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Tudor's Biscuit World Franklin, a West Virginia iconic brand. Um, why is Tudor's Biscuit World in the news this week, Franklin? Uh, it should be in the news because it's freaking delicious, Joe. I mean, it is it is a phenomenal place, great menu. Go get yourself a biscuit. But it's also in the news this week because a union election petition has been filed at their Elk View location. And uh, yeah, they've got uh, they've got an election coming up. So we'll talk about that uh, uh, upcoming segment, Franklin. You you mentioned uh, it, is, it is a biscuit world. It is a breakfast, lunch, and dinner kind of place. And I got to tell you, man, that the biscuit menu there, uh, the, the, just the breakfast menu looks so fantastic. Shaved ham melt. I love the names of all their breakfast sandwiches. Everybody's got a name: the Rom, the Mary B, the Mickey, the Duke, the Rocket. The Miner, the Thundering Herd, obviously an homage to Marshall University. Frank, you can't go wrong on this menu. You cannot. You cannot. In fact, of the, I don't know, what is it, 15 biscuits or so they have? First off, you got to get a biscuit. And they've got 15 or so. And they've also got biscuits, obviously, with their breakfast platters. Don't stray from from the biscuit menu and, and, and the breakfast platter. But one, they all have names. They're all, you know, they've got different types of biscuits. The politician Joe is, I think, the one we need to highlight in this podcast. It is egg, cheese, and bologna. Love it. That's Love fantastic. It. So get yourself down to West Virginia. Go to the New River. Go to Golly Fest. Get on a whitewater rafting trip. And when you're off the, the river, go go to Tudor's and get yourself a biscuit. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go super side. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. As predicted, the Starbucks unionization effort has started to grow and now is getting rooted in other jurisdictions, namely Mesa, Arizona, this week. If that's not enough, another effort's underway at an iconic family-owned restaurant chain in small-town West Virginia. We'll update you on the latest and greatest as unions continue setting their sights on the restaurant industry. And a key legislative threat to the industry this year, the FAST Act in California, has been exported to the local level, the city of Detroit, believe it or not. Justin Winslow, the president and CEO of the Michigan Restaurant Association, joins us to discuss the efforts by industry opponents to take their issue agendas to the local level and why everybody, no matter where they are, should be paying attention to what's happening in Detroit. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the Legislative Scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin has talked about in the opening, even even in sleepy West by God, Virginia, uh, unions or uh, organizing activity is, is happening across the country. The Starbucks campaign that we have been tracking since its inception uh, seems like it is getting rooted in other parts of the country. What's the latest and greatest this week? Well, you hit them both of them. Let's uh, maybe go in reverse order. Starbucks, yes. We had the Buffalo, the three restaurants in Buffalo that's been expanded to three more. And now we have an election petition in Mesa, Arizona. So the campaign has gone national. The story that is uh, being put out there for the the, the Mesa, Arizona location is that a uh, manager there was fired by Starbucks corporate 
because they essentially dumped a bunch of corporate material to the press and they were, you know, a, a whistleblower. And so it's being characterized. And um, in reaction, the corporate brand terminated that and that employee and the employees of that location rallied in defense, in opposition to the corporate brand's actions. And so Starbucks denies this, uh, but this is the way it's it's been reported. And so now we have this organizing in Mesa in reaction to the quote unquote union busting that Starbucks is engaging in. So, you know, if uh, if you're Starbucks corporate, you know, you're looking over your shoulder wondering where, where, where the next shoe is going to drop at this point. I think Mesa is interesting in the sense that Arizona is a right to work state. And, you know, Mesa, for those uh, a little short on their Western geography, Mesa is just right next to Tempe, which is just right next to uh, Phoenix. And obviously the whole area out there, Scottsdale, Phoenix, huge convention tourism type of town, a lot of resorts, a lot of golf courses and so forth. So Mesa is a place that um, you could see, you know, something like this, if it were effective, could really uh, quickly catch fire in other parts of the tourism hospitality economy out there. And Phoenix is, you know, obviously a big metro area and a, and a blue metro. But I think if you're if you're looking at where the hotspots around the country, and we've been talking about a lot of them for a long time in this podcast, Madison and Milwaukee and Cambridge and Buffalo and Seattle and da da da. I don't think Phoenix, Metro Phoenix, was probably in that that top ten list. Um, they may have been on that list somewhere because they're a big metro area, and you know, um, there's there's some level of organizing in a lot of the big the big metros. But I don't think if you had asked me a couple weeks ago where is this Starbucks campaign going next, I would have said Metro Phoenix or or, or Mesa, Arizona. So um, it does show that there's a a little bit of a there's something going on all over the country here. The atmospherics are such kind of all over the country. And from there, we'll pivot to Elkview, West Virginia. Definitely not on, uh, on my target list of metro areas, Joe. Yeah, it's just, it's 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 interesting how, how quickly these things are forming and how organic they are. And as we've gone back and forth over the, the coffee stuff and with Buffalo, you know, some are affiliated with, you know, traditional legacy labor organizations like SEIU, Unite Here. Some like the unsuccessful organizing campaign in Staten Island with Amazon or just, you know, just organic citizen, you know, worker groups just getting active and everything in between. So it's interesting to see how these things are building back. Franklin, um, speaking of Amazon, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on what happened this week with the NLRB basically saying, hey, man, we're going to run this back. We have another election. Why, what, what's the justification for re-litigating that race in Alabama. So we we talked about it during the election. The um, the company had essentially put a, a post office box, you know, a, a, a standalone drop box in front of the company. And the idea was that this made it easier for workers to send their ballots in. They had wrapped that box with some messaging. It was the union is arguing it was within view of, you know, the facility and the cameras of the facility. And so essentially their argument, which the NRB administrative judge accepted was that um, workers were intimidated and it, it therefore impacted the the vote and it wasn't a fair vote. And so they're going to, they're going to require that it's run back as a result. And if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, Franklin, wasn't that 
wasn't the outcome surprisingly lopsided in favor of the company? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't, uh, it's hard. It was so lopsided. I don't, it's hard to imagine that the union's going to make up that much ground, but I guess we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And then we'll also see next week, uh, the, re- the, the votes that the, the door closes Wednesday, the December the 8th for the Starbucks vote at the first three sites in Buffalo. And we should potentially know the results on Thursday, December 9th. Franklin, you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but we have a, we have an, I guess if they weren't confident of their victory, then we wouldn't have action at three more sites just, just around the corner. Correct. Yeah, maybe. I, I think they wouldn't have filed the election petitions if they weren't pretty confident. Um, I mean, the SEIU wouldn't, they don't really mess around with, um, elections. Their win percentage is really high. So and that's the difference between what happened with the Amazon, uh, effort in Staten Island. It wasn't with a sophisticated, you know, seasoned union. They filed their petitions long before they had a reasonable level of support and had to withdraw those petitions because they didn't have that kind of professional guidance. Not the case with Starbucks and Buffalo, correct? That's my sense of things. Now, in Bessemer, um, I, I think the the opposite is probably true. The union was involved in in a in a high level way. Uh, the company still won, but in that case, I, I think the press and the the notoriety around the campaign was kind of the outcome, not necessarily the the win. You know, we'll we'll see. The votes are being cast now, so I mean, we'll, we'll see where things shake out. I would be surprised if these locations in Buffalo aren't aren't unionized, but you don't know until the votes are counted. Well, you are correct, Frank, and we shall see. Um, I know we're, we're bouncing around a little bit. Let's go back to the Tudors uh, conversation in West Virginia. What was the the cause of that? You know, what, what's the problem there? What was the cause of the unrest? Is it wages? Is it benefits? Is it pandemic related? What 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 what's causing the turmoil in for 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 Tudors? Yeah, so it's it, we've seen this in a couple campaigns we we this is at least in the messaging in the starbucks campaign it's it's not necessarily um that much about wages and benefits it's about kind of respect in the workplace and you know in this in this circumstance the tutor employees feel like essentially they've been mistreated by by management and so i i think what this speaks to is you know this is elkview west virginia west virginia is historically um, kind of had a, a heavy level of, of union involvement in the state, not necessarily in the restaurant sector, but, you know, mining and, you know, even auto workers, but, it, you know, heavy industry, right? And um, so there is a legacy there. That being said, in, in more recent times, you know, it has turned into from a kind of blue collar Democrat state to a Trump state. And so, and we've seen union membership on the decline uh, for many years. So, I think what Elkview tells us is there's something going on here that's the atmospherics, if you will, are are different today than they have been in the past. What you had is uh, a group of workers. And in fact, um, it all kind of started with um, an older worker, uh, uh, a retiree who reentered the the workforce as a prep cook, um, had essentially been in the location for, you know, around a year or so. And had no direct connection to a union other than the fact that her late husband was a member of the pipe fitters union. And so, you know, basically the situation where managers were, according to reports and according to to this lady, were yelling at them and kind of disrespecting them 
Um, she called the pipe fitters union. The pipe fitters union referred her to the UFCW. And there we go. Over a two week period, now we have an election petition in this location as a result. Now, that could have happened five years ago, but I, I think what we're seeing is it's happening more and more today in this environment. The difference between this and some of these other campaigns is this is a totally bottom up, or at least all indications are that this is a bottom up kind of, you know, organic organizing campaign, not a top down organizing campaign. And so, you know, that creates challenges. If, if Joe, if you ask me where are the markets that we're going to see the next union campaigns pop up, Elkview, West Virginia wasn't on the list, buddy. And, and I, you know, so this is happening kind of in places all over the country. And that's a dynamic that we need to keep an eye on. Well, Franklin, I know that uh, I, I'm not, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that uh, Elkview, West Virginia is a, a garden of Eden of hunting and fishing, probably just beautiful wilderness. I'm, maybe you should go up there and investigate what's going on on the ground up there for a week or two. I am not afraid to do that at all. Spent many a Many, many a time in, in West Virginia, really to the north of there. But um, but yeah, no, it's beautiful country. And Tudor's has some some beautiful biscuits I wouldn't mind uh, getting into again. So I'm happy to pack a bag and, and depart. Yeah, uh, growing up in Maryland, I was uh, uh, very familiar with West Virginia. Spent a lot of time in that state. Beautiful, beautiful state. Good, good folks up there. So we'll, uh, we will, uh, as always, be tracking this and uh, report back. Well, as listeners will remember, we have spent some time over the past year, uh, early in the spring, and then once again here in the in the fall, late summer, regarding a California a piece of California legislation called the Fast Act. It's basically a setting up sectoral bargaining in the fast food industry and creating a whole set of uh, laws and bylaws and regulations around fast food jobs. Uh, pretty extraordinary piece of legislation. It so far has not. Uh, fit, you know, gone through the legislative process. It's kind of collapsed under its own weight, but it is not dead and not going away. But one thing, Franklin, you have pointed out is, you know, the potential for this type of legislation to pop up in other jurisdictions. And lo and behold, you've noted it's popped up in even a local jurisdiction, a major uh, American city of Detroit. What's going on in that space, Franklin? Yeah. And, it, you know, it comes up in different shapes and forms, depending on where it is. In New York, you know, the, the governor can now call wage board. We've been through that process and other places in Seattle. They've already done sectoral bargaining for rideshare, essentially sectoral bargaining. Um, so it was kind of a matter of time. But yeah, now we have it in Detroit. It's much broader than, you know, the, the FAST Act in California. It, it applies um, to all industry segments. Um, 150 workers have to petition. Um, for this sectoral bargaining, you know, commission to to, to form. Um, but enough hearing from me, Joe, we have the real expert here to kind of kind of walk us through it. Um, so why don't we why don't we kick it over to him? What do you say? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, for the audience, there's there's a lot of icons that have come out of Detroit, Michigan. I mean, you have Henry Ford, right? You have Ted Nugent, you have all kinds of, uh, you know, Barry Gordy and Motown, but I don't think anyone has made as significant a footprint as our good friend, Justin Winslow at the Michigan Restaurant Association. Justin, what an intro that is. You've been compared to Barry Gordy, Henry Ford, and Ted Nugent all in one sentence. How do you feel about that, my friend? 
Uh, I was hoping a little Kid Rock and Eminem might make it onto the list, but, but there's maybe there's still time. Yeah, we we'll got see. a long interview here, Bob. Long interview. But Justin, appreciate you joining us, uh, old friend, old friend of the pod. Uh, as Franklin has alluded, you know this 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 issue set has found its way to your fair city of Detroit. Even though I know you live in Lansing, what is going on in Detroit? You know, talk to me about this 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 space. How did we get here? Tell the audience kind of what the city of Detroit has done. Yeah, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise because there wasn't a lot of public work done uh, on this issue. And there certainly wasn't a belief by the general public, uh, even those following the Detroit City Council, that this had legs and would move quickly. But uh, it, it, it did. And I think there's a lot of concern. You had Franklin had mentioned this. The 150 person, the 150 worker petition threshold is so low that if any one of the three casinos in Detroit decide uh, or they want to target any one of those three casinos, that can be done overnight. And we have some genuine concern from the association that this can be hijacked from a very minute uh, representative of the industry to be used to their own ends. Right. And, and so there's some real concern from our place. But I, I think it was most concerning that both the mayor and the city council were, were in lockstep on this and, and moved uh, these, as for now, not compulsory, certainly just boards that can make some workplace safety recommendations and nothing more within the city of Detroit. But I think what caught everyone by surprise is is that the, the administration was in lockstep with city council. City council can sometimes go a little astray. Uh, so there's some background here. There's some interesting inside politics in the city of Detroit that I don't think were a lot of people were, were that aware of. And it goes back to Proposal P which was on the August ballot in the city of Detroit, would have created a new charter in the city of Detroit. And it, this thing was loaded with a lot of things that were uh, controversial and uh, were aimed to get some support in there. But but things like reparations for, for African-American residents in the city of Detroit what was in the charter revision, uh, free broadband, and a lot, frankly, a lot of free services, period, put forth for any Detroit resident. Uh, it was it was put forth by organized labor, including the SEIU in the, in the area, and uh, had opposition from almost everyone. And at the end of the day, it did not pass, and it didn't even come close. The amount of organization that came together to to oppose it, including the Democratic governor, including any state legislator in the city of Detroit, most city council members, and 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 certainly leading the charge, the mayor to find uh, a safer way out of here, but. Part of the process by which you didn't see organized labor go all in in the city of Detroit on this was uh, what seems to be a, a tacit understanding that some version of what was in the charter that related specifically to this workplace safety board would, would be put forth. And, and this looks like a slightly diluted version of that, but, but a, a version nonetheless that has been enacted in the city. And I think that's how we got where we got. And, and, and the politics are such that the mayor in November, uh, or, you know, this this past fall was reelected uh, and is now an automatic lame duck. So as he has tried to navigate the political scene in Detroit, he's tried to be as pragmatic as possible and inclusive and kind of find a middling ground. He has no such burden anymore and potentially, you know, without having to face reelection can maybe tack you know, more so to the left than he has traditionally, correct? Yeah, I think he has been a mayor that that business in the city has worked pretty well with, uh, certainly in the context of Detroit city politics and its history. And and someone we as an association endorsed and have worked pretty well with is he helped the industry grow pretty tremendously coming out of bankruptcy uh, midway through the last decade. 
And, but you're right. To your to your point, Joe, he is he's just elected into his third term as mayor. While he's not forced into being a lame duck, uh, uh, he has made it pretty clear this is his last term. And so there's a, there, there could be a different tone and tenor to the next few years in the city of Detroit. And uh, if this is any, any indication, uh, they're, go, they're starting off with a bang. So, Justin, tell us about um, this does not just apply to the restaurant sector. It applies broadly. And so there's a lot of different em- employer groups that will be impacted by this. What's, what's your sense? Has there been discussion among the different employer groups in terms of potential legal challenges? How strong do we think this is a pretty unprecedented step by the city to, to charge into this space. I feel relatively confident this bumps up against existing state statute in some way, shape or form. You know, what is what is that kind of legal environment look like? Are there potential challenges out there? Is there discussion around that? Is it too early to have that conversation? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I to your point, Franklin, I do think that there are some concerns that there may be some some legality, uh, some constitutionality uh, issues related to what was just passed in 2015, the, the state legislature passed and the governor signed some some local preemption legislation, preempting essentially exactly what they're trying to create here. Uh, we've spoken to our attorneys. Their early take is that at least as it exists right now in a non-compulsory way, it doesn't necessarily impact because you're not creating a, a local wage. You're not creating new specific fringe benefits or specific workplace standards. You're creating recommendations by which the, the city council uh, and the mayor could could choose to try to do something with. But I think that's where you start bumping up against the harder ceiling of the local preemption legislation passed in 2015. Gotcha. So the lawsuits may not be ripe yet, essentially, until the, the city takes action. And as I understand it, this this ordinance can't even change for at least a full calendar year after after being passed. So there, there's no sense of a bait and switch and making this more compulsory in, 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 in a short term. I also don't think that this industry is number one on, on the wish list. Okay, it's not right. that, you know, you know, when you have members of Fight for 15 engaged in the process, I certainly think that the, the restaurant and possibly hotel industries are going to be engaged. There's a pretty active Unite Here chapter in the city of Detroit. But first and foremost, I think I, I think they're going to be going after the, the nursing sector in the city right. of Detroit. And that's 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 where you're going to see something pretty quickly. So just yeah. let's, let, let me let me let me build on that. And, and yeah, so our so we may not be, you know, our industry may not be front and center in the firing line, at least now or anytime soon. But if you're an owner of a single unit restaurant, bar and grill, you know, in Detroit, A or B, you know, you're a large chain, you're, you know, Darden or Outback, whatever it may be, you know, just take the first one. What what are your concerns? What what should you be paying attention to as a restaurant tour? What what are your concerns if you take off your restaurant association hat and put on your restaurant owner hat? What are you concerned about with this? Well, I, I think pretty quickly, if, if 150 people can be gathered and organized, which the city of Detroit has done a, a pretty good job historically of organizing workers uh, and still has that infrastructure, that sort of legacy infrastructure of organizing workers, uh, that there's, there could be some concerns. I, I think coming out of COVID, the level of, of stress put on people working in this industry, restaurant, uh, hotel, both, uh, and how customers have treated them and how they do their job has put extra stress, especially since they're usually doing the work of about one and a half to two people right now. This industry in Michigan is still 70,000 people fewer than it was at the same time in 2019. 
and so it's trying to meet demand that that outpaces that 2019 with way way, way fewer people, and and it's stressing a lot of the workforce out. I think there's going to be some some level of sentimental support for uh, building an infrastructure uh, around helping those those workers. So if you are operating in the city, and if you're operating the city as a small independent, you've probably had it harder than anyone in the state of Michigan because the city of Detroit has been particularly challenged of trying to draw people back downtown. The the amount of time that no events, no concerts, no sports, no large uh, conferences took place in the city uh, overwhelmed a lot of those who need that activity because there's just not enough uh, of a residential base in the city of Detroit to, to counter that. And so a lot of these places, it, I, we saw more closures in the city than anywhere else. Those who made it out are in a, in a vulnerable place, and now they're going to be dealing with some of this uh, on, on top of it, which I think is going to make it harder to operate. Frank, let me ask you, are there are there dynamics, you know, and maybe and Justin, maybe this is, is a question for you as well. But, you know, outside of Detroit, you know, what what, what our audience is, is is probably interested in is, you know, are there are there um, uh, similarities between the forces in the city of Detroit? that made this happen and and are those forces that work in other places of the country are other places franklin vulnerable or you know to this type of thing is there an undercurrent under underway out there that's pushing this or or do we think it was just unique to the circumstances of the city of detroit franklin what is your take on that yeah 100 i mean this is this is heading down the sectoral bargaining line path if you will it's similar similarly structured and justin talked about kind of some of the differences, but just because I don't think we've gone through it in, in detail yet, but um, just to go through it so you can see the similarities, Joe, you know, 150 workers petition for this board to be set up. This board is a nine member volunteer board consisting of three people who are either employees in, in the industry or representatives chosen by employees, one appointed by the mayor, two by the city council, Three people are in a managerial or association level in the industry. That could be Mr. Mr. Winslow, I guess. Uh, one from the mayor, two from the city council, a member of the mayor's office, a member of the city council, and a person from the public at large chosen by the city council. Now, that all sounds well and good, but what we've seen is these boards have been convened in other parts of the country is they are oftentimes not well represented by industry and make recommendations that are often can be extremely harmful and, and dramatic um, and cut into P&L pretty quickly. Um, you know, what we've seen in the California fast and, and you know, in, in the wage boards in New York and others is they, they have that authority within themselves, essentially taking that authority away from the legislature or the government agency to actually write the laws and hear as Justin mentioned, we're, we're making recommendations to go back to the city council. But we've seen a consistent and organized push around the country to to set up these kind of boards, these sectoral bargaining boards that theoretically have representatives from uh, workers or unions and theoretically have representatives from industry, from management. And they set the wages and conditions of employment for that industry segment. This is not a new concept in the world. Um, It's not common here in the United States and has not been since we kind of went the trade unionism route instead of some Western European countries that that have this kind of worker council model. But it's a model that the SEIU is wants to see. And this is one of many attempts I think we've seen around the country to uh, 
to test it in kind of different local and state laboratories. That's a long way to answer your question, Joe, but I, I think this is one of many attempts at this that we're going to continue to see as they try to kind of focus in and, and figure out a model that works. Just from a Michigan perspective, right, we, we pull up members on this, less than one in 10 uh, full service restaurants in Michigan support something like the idea of eliminating or dramatically changing the tip credit as it exists right now in the state. Uh, but that's a distinct minority that that Franklin's talking about that would likely be chosen by council or or the mayor to be representative. And so that's what we saw in New York. The, exactly what we saw in New York. That's exactly right. So it's a non-compulsory board, but you're going to get elevated uh, and, and get greater standing to topics like eliminating uh, the tip minimum wage in, in Michigan. And it gets the perception that it has credibility because it represents uh, not just workers, but but industry leaders and people who are of this industry as well. And it, it will likely be a distinct minority, but their status will be elevated. And that helps change the nature of the conversation around tip minimum wage and tip credit in general going forward. Yeah. So I think that for, for the listener, the, the lesson is here is to, you know, understand what, what, what's taking place in Detroit, what has happened, the forces at work, because, and understand that it is not a, uh, a Detroit issue. It's an early laboratory, as use Franklin's term, and we are likely going to be seeing this play out in municipalities across the country. So Detroit is a good uh, case study in, in where the puck is going on this particular issue. So, uh, Justin, appreciate you uh, getting us smart on that. My friend, while I have you um, pivoting, you wear many hats. And one of your hats is as a distinguished leader of the Council of State Restaurant Associations, which for the audience is the amalgam of the heads of the 50 state restaurant associations are in a collective group to learn from each other, best practices, share best ideas and so forth um, in, in you know, stage a number of industry forums throughout the year. Justin, you just had one of those forums down in uh, Franklin and I's home state of Florida just a few weeks ago. What was your take on that meeting? And, you know, where, where is the state of the collective working, working arrangement of state restaurants, associations. It seems, seems to me you all uh, make a pretty good team and are all pretty much on the same page. I mean, first of all, the, the assumption that the CSRA is not a household name with, with not just the listeners of this podcast, but people across America is is mildly insulting, Joe. I, I can't believe it. Uh, I'm corrected. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, the CSRA has, has existed for a long time, and it allows all the different state restaurant associations, of which there are 52 to share ideas, share what's happening in their state. We are not collab or we are not competing uh, for members uh, in any way. So the idea that we can share best practices allows all of us to be better. And I think, frankly, state restaurant associations as an entity were elevated pretty high uh, during the COVID period from uh, relative obscurity to being put front and center with the media and telling a story of what was happening to this industry. And, and so as we come out of that process, what does the post-COVID world look like for the industry? And there's a lot of people who gathered in Florida, your great home state, uh, to share what that looks like. We, we're blessed to have uh, the sitting governor uh, of your great state, Ron DeSantis, come and, and speak to the group and gave an impassioned uh, speech, which was uh, well taken by the group and, you know, and, and inspired a lot of conversation. But I think there's a lot of challenges ahead uh, for this industry. I think it's changing rapidly. Uh, a lot of things that we all that you talk about uh, every single week on this podcast are things that we're dealing with in our respective states. Uh, and it's, and COVID has just uh, really acted as a catalyst to a lot of those changes. So 
we're doing our best to, to be able to respond and act on behalf of, of our members. And so it was a great conference. Uh, a, a lot of elite dialogue shared uh, with a lot with aligned public strategies providing and guiding a lot of that uh, conversation. So we appreciate that as well. A lot of work to be done uh, in, the, in the coming years at CSRA. Audience note that was a shameless yet unsolicited plug. But uh, Franklin, what was your take on take it. Justin's confab down there in South Florida? Uh, he did okay. <laughs> no, I thought it was great. It was good. It was, first off, it's just good to be back together in person, right? But And I, I think the information sharing in person is just different than over Zoom, particularly over a two-day conference. So I, I thought it was productive. I thought there was a lot of, a lot of good conversation. I, I do. I do as well. And it you know, just kind of further solidified, you know, that there's, I've been, as Franklin reminds me multiple times a day, I've been around this industry a long time. And, um, you know, the, 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 the working relationship between the states and the, the National Restaurant Association and the working relationship between them and the chains, you know, kind of accordion. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not so great. It seems to me we're at kind of a, a high water mark. Uh, across, across the 25 years of my tenure, we're at a kind of a high watermark on those working relationships. So a lot of that's uh, to be you know, credited to you, Justin, and your team at, at CSRA, Sean and his team at NRA, and the chains are doing, you know, pulling their weight uh, for the first time in a long time in that space as well. So I think good things are ahead. I'm glad you guys are doing that. We've got a busy, busy 2022 ahead of us on a lot of, you know, as Franklin makes the point, uh, Franklin talks a lot about the volatility of the issue environment. And while the pandemic has provided us with some new issues to fight vaccines and so forth, it's really putting, put, put a, uh, turned up the heat on a lot of our existing business model issues that we've been talking about for years in terms of wages and benefits and, you know, whether it's product sustainability, whatever that is, it's really turned up the heat and the intensity of all those current, uh, you know, long-term, you know, legacy issues. But anyway, kudos to you, Justin, uh, Franklin, any last shots you want to make it at Justin, uh, you know, before we let him go. It's only like a 45 minute podcast. So, um, not, not, <laughs> enough time. Uh, <laughs> not enough time in the day. No, no, but, uh, now keep up the good work and, uh, I'm sure we'll be having you back on in, in coming months here. Justin, thanks pal. You're the best. Appreciate, appreciate all you do for us and appreciate your time today. Thanks guys. Appreciate the opportunity as always. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, let's start with OSHA. Uh, they extended the uh, comment period for their ETS. They did. And so it's been pushed back to January 19th, 2022, to allow stakeholders to review it. Da, 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 da. This comes at the same time that we have cascading legal challenges. And in fact, this week, the mandate for healthcare workers has been halted. So um, that could have factored into the decision here. Of course, this is all against the backdrop of the new Omicron variant, which is creating a lot of uh, kind of worry and discussion with with policymakers. There's a lot of jurisdictions that are considering whether or not they need to uh, go back and look at mass mandates and social distancing and all that sort of thing. I don't think there's a huge appetite for that, but we're getting ready to have that that big conversation again. Yeah, and uh, ongoing conversation in the nation's two biggest cities, Los Angeles and New York, uh, moving in this space as well. What happened in Los Angeles? Well, we continue this um, conversation in California. In and out has been earning headlines around it. But um, 
the city began enforcement of its new ordinance requiring proof of vaccination, sort of the vaccine passport rule, to enter a variety of businesses, restaurants, gyms, theaters, salons, etc. Um, the rule took effect in early November, but there was kind of a, a delay period before the, the essentially the effective date. And so businesses need to be in compliance now. Uh, first offense is a thousand dollar fine, additional five thousand dollars. And we've seen in and out has been the one earning a, a lot of the kind of national headlines around this. But a lot of businesses have been struggling to uh, comply with this. And Franklin, going back across the country, New York, their their uh, local paid sick law must look like a, a big document with, you know, 300 little yellow post-it notes attached to it. Because every week they're amending that paid sick leave law and expanding it. And they did it again this week. Yeah, they expanded it to include children. So additional four hours of paid leave to accompany a child to receive the vaccination or recover from the vaccination. Um, So, yep, another another requirement in New York City, Joe. And on the wage front, Franklin, nothing big, but uh, Governor of Colorado signed or not really signed a law, but came to an agreement with the public employees unions on on the wage scales. Yeah, fifteen dollars an hour by 2022. And Bank of America, speaking of raising wages, they just they just upped their raise to twenty one bucks an hour earlier this year. Now they've got a, a new announcement. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to reach twenty five dollars an hour by twenty twenty five. So that's they're currently at I think forty four k twenty one dollars an hour equals that out. So they're they're going up to twenty twenty one dollars an hour now, and then they'll they'll escalate over time. So that's. It's a pretty big impact in the labor market. Sure is. Um, Franklin paid leave. Uh, the, the, the gates are open and uh, employees that want to participate in the paid leave, the new paid leave program up there. It's open season. Yep. Get your applications in. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, in a number of the jurisdictions that have stood up these paid leave programs in the first year or two. Um, we've seen kind of under participation or less participation than was expected. And so it'll be interesting a year from now to see how many people take advantage of this, uh, this program in Connecticut. And Frank, we had Justin Winslow on earlier in the podcast, but you want to just uh, take a few seconds for the folks that missed that interview, reiterate what's happening in Detroit. Yeah. And we kind of touched on it, but I'll just run through the ordinance and, and kind of the requirements under it. So the city council passed an ordinance that sets up an industry standards boards um, or, or the ability to set up industry standard boards within the city. The city council or the mayor or 150 workers can come together and sign a petition and submit that to the city clerk. And the city council is required to then set up an industry standards board. That board is composed of appointees that represent the industry from the employee side, from the association side, uh, from the em- employer side, manager side, and from the public. And that board is able to take testimony, hold public hearings, do outreach. Essentially, it becomes a very public platform to drive the local conversation and narrative around working conditions within that specific industry. Those boards will then make recommendations to the city council that uh, the city council can choose to enact or not. That board can also recommend enforcement actions to the city. And so I I think you're going to see this platform become really kind of a mechanism for labor advocates to pull brands up, 
to drive enforcement actions and to drive a conversation around wages, benefits, and, and other work conditions. And I think healthcare is probably first up, and I suspect we're not far behind. Well said. Uh, Franklin, uh, we had an entire session on what's happening in the, the union space uh, this this week. Just to reiterate, obviously, the NLRB is calling for a new election at the Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, where that uh, campaign was defeated earlier this year. Obviously, the Starbucks petitions are due next week. We, we may know as early as next week a preliminary outcome. And and to your point uh, you made earlier, the, the, the web is spreading. And now Mesa, Arizona restaurant Mesa, Arizona has filed a petition for representation as well. And even wild, wonderful West Virginia, West by God, Virginia is not immune from the labor wars with an iconic brand up there being uh, the beginning of the unionization process as well. So a lot going on in that space. Franklin, a lot going on in the delivery space as well. DoorDash can't stay out of the news. What happened this week? They reached a settlement with uh, the city of San Francisco. They'll pay more than $5.3 million. And 5.1 will go to the workers who completed deliveries between 2016 and 2020. This was all around the the brand, the platform, uh, taking tips um, and not allowing those to go, essentially taking tip credit and not having those tips go directly to the workers. So this is a settlement. So we don't know exactly. There's no admission of wrongdoing here. So we don't know exactly kind of all the details of the case, but it's a pretty big payout uh, for DoorDash driver workers. And it shows how, you know, kind of vulnerable um, or the, the the tough position that not only the platforms, but other employers are in, in these this tipped wage conversation. Franklin, pivoting to California, an issue that we followed very, very closely uh, back in 2019, um, they passed a law mandating specific female representation on uh, on publicly traded, the boards of publicly traded companies that were uh, domiciled in California. Lawsuits been filed against that and the, the opening arguments were this week. What's going to happen that, in, that, in that case? Well, it's probably going to be struck down because it seems pretty patently unconstitutional, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to... Uh, We'll have to see if that's a case. Judicial Watch is the kind of activist, conservative activist group that is pushing this. No uh, companies, of course, wanted to kind of wear this. But, you know, the intent here in California, I think, was was noble and own point. But I don't think this is going to hold up in a court of law is is a lawful way to go about achieving those ends. And allegedly, when Governor Brown, former Governor Jerry Brown, signed that law, he kind of, you know, alluded to the fact that it probably wouldn't hold up in court. And uh, so we'll see that it's supposed to take about a week. It's not a jury trial. A, a, a judge will decide it's supposed to take about a week. So we may know next week where the, the state of that, uh, of, of that case. And the last piece, Franklin McDonald's a uh, lot of news over the last week or two with an investment fund, a kind of a socially progressive investment fund calling on McDonald's to do a civil rights audit. What's that about? Yeah, so we've seen a lot of activity in this space. We saw New York recently, some similar activity where the SEIU here and in New York, they're targeting kind of the the pension funds and they're going after uh, pension funds, including McDonald's and other brands in those funds um, and, and kind of approaching it from that angle. So, you know, this is they're framing it as this is in the wake of the comments by the CEO that, that drew some attention and they want to quote unquote, hold corporations accountable and their leadership accountable for irresponsible and unethical corporate behavior, dot, 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 dot. So, 
you know, essentially what they're, this is a divestment scheme um, that that's really what they're pushing for. And they're hoping they can gain some leverage in McDonald's. This is kind of a common union tactic through this process. So something for brands to look out for. We've seen a little uptick in, in activism in this space recently. And I think we're going to continue to see uh, an escalation to your point in this, in this space going forward. So uh, pretty quick scorecard this week. Uh, we'll have more for you next week. Well, Franklin, it's getting that time of the year, end of the year. It's, you know, college football playoffs and we're careening toward the end of the NFL season. It's cold. A lot more folks are inside watching television. The ad wars are hot and heavy. Uh, a lot of sporting events, a lot of sporting ads. One this weekend caught uh, my eye, caught Carson's eye, and a number of other folks regarding Domino's Pizza and a commercial that they were running, they have been running, and it entails buying gift certificates and their local franchisees purchasing $100,000 worth of gift certificates to encourage their their customers to also patronize local restaurants. What is going on with that story, Franklin? Yeah, I saw it during the uh, NC State UNC game, which wish I'd cut it off after that. But um, yeah, no, so it, it's a good ad. They're supporting local restaurants, so they're tapping into the local independent restaurant uh, favorability. And so when you order Domino's now, you get a gift card to a local uh, restaurant. And in fact, one of them was an Italian restaurant that was featured in the, uh, in the ad. And at the same time, Domino's takes a swipe at the delivery companies for the fees that they're using to gouge the independent restaurant tour. So it's a thing of beauty, um, Joe. So let's, let's uh, we have that audio. We're gonna play a, a bit of that audio of the commercial. Uh, to your point, I think it's a thing of beauty. And uh, when we finish that 30 second uh, little piece of audio, we'll come back and, and talk more about it. Local restaurants have been hit hard by fees from delivery apps. They take a huge chunk of our bottom line. All of that comes out of our pocket and goes to them. So Domino's franchisees went to local restaurants and bought $100,000 of their gift cards to give out to our customers. That way they could support a mom and pop by ordering directly from them. And no one got hit by delivery app fees. I can't believe one restaurant is buying another restaurant's gift certificates to give out, but it sure is wonderful. So if you're not getting Domino's, skip the delivery apps and order directly from a local restaurant. So, Franklin, to your point, that is a thing of beauty. I, I am amazed at how, in a 30-second spot, they could highlight their own brand. They could empower franchisees and let people know about their local Domino's dealer. They could help patronize local restaurants uh, and be supportive of the industry writ large and be good local community players. And, oh, by the way, the cherry on top of the Sunday. They could take a baseball bat and kneecap the delivery platforms at the same time. It's, I mean, that's a lot for 30 seconds. Hat tip to the uh, Domino's marketing team. Super impressive. Obviously, it's an issue uh, that is percolating, that's festering. And I think as the um, state legislatures reconvene in 2022 and certainly at the local level throughout the country, this, this issue is escalating. So I think we're going to see a lot more kind of in the delivery space between traditional uh, entities that have delivery fleets and uh, third-party delivery platforms. So it is coming soon to a theater near you. And on that note, we will talk to you again next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.